Hello, and welcome to a new episode of SIS Masters podcast. I am Arnaud Rija, founder of Sports Innovation Society, and I interview for you some of the best experts in the sports industry. Today, I welcome Alan Gilpin, CEO of World Rugby, to speak about the challenges of such an international organization to develop the game further, its competitions, its participation, and the engagement for the sport. Welcome. So, Alan, great speaking with you at SIS Masters podcast. Long time since we were negotiating together EDF contract. Long time ago in our early 20s, you were a lawyer at IMG. So scary one, so one we you know pay attention to if we want to make the deal. And I was negotiating on behalf of Hava Sports with the help of William Jefferson, that uh, you know. So congrats for the journey. How are you today? Yeah, thanks, Anna. Look, really, really great to be speaking with you. And uh, yeah, it feels like feels like on the one hand, not very long at all ago that we were we were doing those negotiations back for Rugby World Cup in 2007. And on the other hand, of course, feels like a long time ago. So no, very, very good. Thanks. And yeah, good to, good to be with you. As well. So today we will speak about the next challenges of Rugby. In 2021, you become CEO of this massive organization. And the situation was not too bad. If you look at figures from the past 10 years, number of players went from 3.7 million to 9.6. Fans increased two-thirds in rugby markets and double in emerging markets such as USA, Brazil, China, India. And in almost all markets, sports, the sport, rugby sport was perceived as safer, which is key. So you take the job after being CEO during COVID and you seized this great opportunity in a way to take a deep breath and design the future of rugby in a way, reimagining the business model. Uh, can you let me know about that process? First, how did you feel when they said, oh, you know what? You're the guy to become the new CEO. Yeah, look, it, it, you know, it obviously um, a great kind of honor and a privilege to, to, to take the sort of uh, the CEO role in an organization that I knew very well. And I'd been already at that point six years uh, within World Rugby, mostly as, as the head of Rugby World Cup, which, as you know, I knew well from the past as well, from, particularly from a commercial uh, perspective. So I've, I've been in World Rugby since 2014 and been working very closely with my predecessor, Brett Gosper, who um, it was a fantastic uh, CEO for me and somebody that I certainly learned a lot from in uh, in those six years. So, you know, when when Brett decided to move on, it was, you know, obviously I was you know really keen to to be considered for the role and as I say, great kind of honour and, and, and privilege and I'm very proud to do it. But as you mentioned, it also comes with a degree of trepidation because you know, World Rugby as an organisation had gone through a period of of really significant growth, um, and of course that that then creates the question: How do you how do you continue to build on that growth? How do you you know continue that journey? What can we change? How can we improve uh, what we're doing with uh, with our sports? So you know that's been the the uh, the challenge for the last eighteen months or so, and, and and one that I've you know to this point really massively enjoyed, and I think we're making some great uh, some great progress. You know, like a lot of people, I'm sure listening to the the podcast, and certainly a lot of people in the sports and events business, there'd never been anything like a global COVID pandemic. You know, we'd all seen different events that can disrupt individual events or you know short periods of time, but to have this enforced break from live sport and from what we all do for for such a long period was, you know, an overused word, but truly unprecedented. So. We we looked at that in two ways. One, as a sport, that meant we faced a lot of challenges. 
we were lucky as World Rugby as the organisation because our major revenue generating moment is the Men's Rugby World Cup. And that had happened just before COVID in, in late 2019 in Japan, you know, fantastically successful tournament. We were thrilled uh, with that tournament. So we came into the COVID pandemic in a, in a fortuitous position, maybe compared to other sports or other event owners that, that we'd, we had that championship and, um, and we're in a good position financially. That was really important within rugby because we were able to support and help fund um, our own membership. You know, we're made up of, of 129 national rugby unions or federations and, and six regional associations. We needed to support them in COVID when they were under huge financial pressure. Um, and, you know, many still are and that's, that's still continuing. But we also had an opportunity in COVID that I think I'd like to think we took really well was to, to sort of step back a little bit from the, the day to day dealing with issues and say, OK, when we come through the other side of this and we will, how are we going to behave differently as an organisation? How is rugby going to continue that growth trajectory that, that you mentioned there at the, at the start? And, and um, how do we need to evolve um, to do that? We were already in a period of really significant consultation across the sport to generate the new strategic plan. We'd had a strategic plan in place for the previous uh, eight years. So we were always coming into a new strategic plan. And I think what COVID allowed us to do was be very thoughtful about what does, you know, if your purpose as an organization is to grow the sport of rugby globally, how are we going to do that in a post-pandemic world? How do we need to behave and change as an organization to be as effective as possible? And and that's really what we've been focused on in the last 18 months, to be honest, Arno. We, we, we brought in a new plan that's very focused on specific pillars around around participation, which is, you know, like any sport, the kind of lifeblood of what we do around our competitions, because we run the pinnacle global moments in our sport. How do we make those both more inspiring for people to watch and enjoy, but also more aspirational for people who want to play the game and, and bring new participants into the sport? So, so participation, competition, engagement, like any sports and entertainment business, how do we engage more fans in more places more of the time? That's the, that's the never ending question and challenge. And then underpinning all of that, um, th this pillar of the game itself. And, you know, people hate us to talk about products, but ultimately in a very competitive, you know, sports and entertainment landscape, our product is the sport of rugby. And we want that product to be more loved. Uh, by by fans in in more places. So you know, how do we continue to evolve the game itself uh, in all of its forms to be uh, to be more engaging? So you know, uh, probably for us, an evolution of our previous strategic plan, but one that's a little bit more focused because of that those pillars that we've uh, that we've included. And the one thing that allowed us to do that was very, I think, well received by our own stakeholders within the sport and those that we try to engage. Around us is that we we slightly adjusted as a result of that work our purpose. So our purpose previously was growing the the, the global rugby family, effectively growing the sport. Um, our purpose now is growing rugby globally by making it more relevant and accessible. And I think those you know whilst it's just a couple of words on a page in some respects, they're important words because again, like lots of sports, and particularly I think challenging for team sports in a very fast moving. Uh, environment of consumer habits you know if you're going to be growing you've got to be relevant to players and fans and the people that you're trying to reach and you've got to be accessible um, and that's that those are the areas that we're really focused on right now yeah small differences 
uh, small words, but big impact on how you plan everything. So now let's go through this plan. Uh, you mentioned the three pillars, um, competition, participation, engagement, underpinned by evolving the game itself, the product, I totally agree, it's a product, it's entertainment. Um, let's start with competition. One of the biggest challenges for most IFs, uh, international federation, is building a competition format and a global calendar. And we've seen challenges at FIFA and changes and many others. And, you know, work would be at the same, I wouldn't say issues, but challenges to set a clear path on the coming years to have a clear tool to work with in a way. Um, yeah. So tell us, tell us more about that process that makes that you have a beautiful North Star, which is United States uh, 20, uh, 31 and 33. Yeah, and you're quite right. The, the the global calendar, the global kind of schedule for the sport, for any sport, is 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 part of the challenge. And I think, like a lot of sports, you know, as we've grown, and rugby has been a professional sport for 25, 26 years. You know, a long history before that. Believe it or not, in in 2023 next year, rugby will be 200 years old. So we're we're a young sport professionally, but a you know a sport with a huge amount of heritage and tradition with a long history. And over that particularly professional era, what's happened, of course, as is happening in, in football and other sports, is there are multiple layers of competitions. You know, our, our players, our participants are employed in some parts of the world by, by national federations, in some parts of the world by, by clubs, in some parts of the world by uh, centrally contracted professional league competitions. And those models create different challenges in terms of how those players are able to play in cross-border or international rugby and then different competition owners have a different view of where they should sit in the in the in the calendar ultimately what's happened of course is that in order to continue to grow their own individual products there's more and more rugby added to the calendar all the time there's more and more competitions there's more and more fixtures so whether that's a, you know for, for a player who plays international rugby for let's say france they're playing for their club they're playing in you know domestic competition. They could be playing in European cross-border competition. They're clearly playing uh, international rugby. Uh, there are World Cups. There are other you know other events. So what we've struggled, I think, to do as a sport um, and a set of stakeholders in a sport in the last, in all honesty, twenty years, is really find the answers to that congested, competing, fragmented in many ways calendar. And it's not because people don't want to find those answers. It's because all of finding those answers requires people to compromise. And, you know, who's going to compromise most and how do we how do we get through that? I think it's fair to say, and again, um, as challenging as COVID was, it brought a number of our different uh, partners to the table for those discussions in a way that maybe hadn't been the case before. When everybody's facing a very, very challenging, in some cases, existential time, they come, I think, to the to the negotiating or discussion table with um, with a maybe more open mind than, than had been the case previously. That's been really positive. That doesn't mean we've solved the problem. That problem really is in our 15-a-side men's game. We're working hard to find some answers to that, and there's been good press coverage around some of the concepts uh, we've, we've looked at in terms of using international release windows, which we have in July and November in our sport, not so much dotted throughout the year as FIFA, for example, but in more concentrated periods for international rugby. Um, we, we, uh, we're looking at competition models across those uh, different release windows, you know, not dissimilar to, for example, a UEFA Nations League. Uh, that concept of how do you give real meaning and competitive 
value to what might have otherwise been friendly fixtures. So that's been an area of focus and, and making sure that we've got, a, again, a set of products that are valuable and understandable to the rugby fan and to the fans that we're trying to bring into our sport. The other part of that challenge for us as a sport is that one of our biggest growth opportunities without question is the women's game and how we grow women's rugby. It's been the fastest growing part of our sport for a number of years. How do we really push that forward? And one part of that as the women's uh, rugby game professionalizes in some parts of the world, how do we make sure effectively that we're not creating the same problems with the women's global calendar and the women's season and the women's uh, structures that we have created in the men? So it's, it's, there's, a, there's a piece of this work that is learning the lessons of some of the challenges we've created in the men's game and not repeating it as the women's game professionalizes and making sure that we're providing better outcomes. And underpinning a lot of that is in a in a sport like rugby that's contact-based, that's that's physical, you know, simply simply asking players, and often it's the same players at the top of the game, to play more matches with less rest periods, with you know, that's 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 a really massive player welfare and safety issue for us. So We've got to make sure that we are not just building great products that excite fans and the players love playing in, but are as safe as possible from a welfare perspective for our players. So it's um, it's a complex challenge, the calendar issue, as it is in lots of sports, but one that we, you know, we're never losing sight of in all the work we do. Mm-hmm. And right now you've got all the World Cup sets, which is first time in history, with France 23, which is a traditional model of having a hosting country, if I understand well, and 200 years of rugby, so it's a big celebration. Uh, then you have a different model that will be implemented working with host countries uh, for yeah. Australia and for United States. So Australia, Australia, major market, major rugby market, and United States growing market with massive potential both on men and women. So what is this new model that you implemented to work with hosting countries? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I think as part of that strategic plan, you know, and again, one of those pillars being competitions, what we recognize is that those pinnacle moments in, in rugby, as in other sports or Olympic Games or other big multi-sport events, they are the moments that drive the biggest attention for our sport. They're the moment where we have more people watching and enjoying and coming maybe for the first time to rugby uh, compared to anything else. There's a there's a separate challenge, obviously, in sustaining those audiences and making sure that we are, again, relevant and accessible. When we, when we again, look at the strategic plan and step back from that and said, okay, is the model that we've got to, to award, or award to host or select hosts, is the model that we've got to plan and deliver these tournaments and ultimately the model that we've got as a business model to commercialize these tournaments, is that optimal? For the next 10 years it served us very well in the previous 20 years you know next year's edition next year's rugby world cup in france and the men's world cup will be the ninth edition sorry 10th edition of rugby world cup we've had nine today so we've, we've grown very well as a sport with that model but is it optimal for the next 10 years and the answer unsurprisingly was no actually if we're going to be very strategic about how we use those pinnacle moments to grow the sport We've got to select hosts in a different way um, and look at the really key growth markets for the sport. And, and markets don't just necessarily mean, obviously, countries. It can be regions. And one of the things that's very attractive about hosting Rugby World Cup, uh, Rugby World Cups, in fact, in 2027 for the men's and 2029 for the women's in Australia, is that being back in that Asia-Pacific region, 
you know, plays back to that huge audience in Japan that we've generated for the sport, plays into that Southeast Asia time zone that's becoming really important for us. In addition to Australia being a fantastic you know, host territory for any major sporting event, certainly has been in the past and, and will be for us. So, so there's there was a there's much more strategic drive behind those hosting decisions, and then underpinning that, a, a, a changing business model that recognises that we have to have as an organisation a more direct relationship with the consumer in the future. And again, that that's not that's not unique to World Rugby and Rugby World Cup. We are seeing ourselves more as a distributor of content in a direct conversation with sports fans and rugby fans than ever before. And we want to capture their attention and keep their attention and have them, you know, fall in love with rugby more often. So, so part of that is changing the business model from one where we used to outsource the organization and delivery and the ticket sales and everything that is delivering a rugby world cup to a local organizing committee in a, in a host country. And now we're taking effectively direct ownership of that ourselves and we are responsible for building those local organizing committees albeit still in partnership with our member union in in those host countries so very much in partnership with rugby australia for the tournaments there very much in partnership with the usa rugby uh, in the tournaments in, in 2031 and, and 2033 and indeed for for rugby uh, in england in, in 2025 and we take our women next edition of women's world cup to to england Hmm. What does it mean in terms of revenue share? Because in the traditional model of hosting country delivering the event, you've got second tier sponsorship, traditionally not too much media rights, eventually national media rights. You've got the yeah. ticket, ticketing and hospitality. If you take over uh, those parts, what is the business model that will be implemented? Exactly that. It's, it, it's, it's a form of joint venture, really. I mean, again, it's not it's not enormously dissimilar to the evolution that FIFA and UEFA and some others have gone through, where you know taking direct control of all of the revenue streams clearly brings advantages in terms of looking across multiple tournaments, both from a managing cost, building great platforms for ticketing, for engaging fans, for example, and then also, of course, building structures that can, can deliver great competitions in multiple places. So there's there's a there's a different business model there. That is a different sort of partnership or joint venture, depending on where we are. So, you know, there's a revenue share model that we've agreed with Rugby Australia for the tournaments there. They're bringing a lot of, of, of national and local financial uh, inputs to the tournament because the model in Australia is very much that cities and states and, and, and national governments support um, events of, of a World Cup nature coming to Australia. In the US, the model is very different, where it's much more privately funded model so there's there's going to be and as as this business model evolves through those additions and beyond there will be i think you know continuous evolution of that business model our responsibility i guess is to is to use those events to generate as much uh, commercial revenue as much revenue as we can net revenue i guess ultimately to to use to invest in everything else we do in the sport you know from governing the game From making sure we're, we're putting safety first and, and, and the research and the science that we put behind that through to building out and investing in the growth of the sport which you know is coaching the coaches generating match officials doing everything that supports um, the game being played so we've got a lot of, of investment to put into the sport using the big events the rugby world cups our world rugby seven series that we're also reimagining to drive those revenues is really important but we also want to make sure that the host gets a fair part of the deal Um, that the risk reward profile is very different from them now under the original model or the traditional model because they don't have the risk anymore of paying to deliver the tournament. So um, yeah, it's it's moving and it's and it's going to be interesting. 
so less risk for the host country. So that means you can decide where you go based on strategic development of the game. And that means tailor-made business ventures uh, with host countries depending on the situations. Exactly. Mm, quite evolving, very different from, from most models. And if you take over all those incomes, that means you represent even a bigger interest uh, as where it would be for potential investment funds. We've seen CVC in, in with um, volleyball world, with different sports, leagues, clubs, and so on. So what is your, what is your stake on that? What, what is it you, want, you eventually want? And what, what do you think is, how beneficial can it be? And what are the risks of such strategic alliances? Yeah, look, it's a very topical question, isn't it? And there certainly seems to be uh, more, you know, external capital and more investment uh, into sports, you know, at, at many levels than than I think that there maybe has ever been before. And you know, and part of that, and maybe this is overly simplistic, I think, is investors looking at the the level of uh, commercialization of, of sport, for example, in those North American big big professional leagues, and then looking at maybe sports in Europe and other parts of the world and, and, and seeing them as slightly underexploited from a commercial perspective. And, and I mean that in the in the nicest possible sense. You know, if we if we invest better and and, and improve uh, the capabilities of those other sports and those other leagues and other organizations to commercialize their assets, then kind of, you know, there'll be a be a return on that investment for everybody. So so there's definitely investment coming in. And we've, as you just mentioned, we've seen that in rugby with Certainly, CBC's investment in, in European rugby through the Six Nations, Premiership rugby here in the UK, United Rugby Championship, and, and so on, and, and other investors. I think the fact that there is investment in sport and investment in rugby, where those investors are trying to drive growth, you know, in the sport, that's that's a positive. Does that come with some challenges and some risks? Yes, as long as yes, if if it's the case that that uh, that return on investment isn't going to be for the ultimate benefit of the sport itself. So it's a, you know, like in so many of these deals, particularly in private equity, it's about the way that deal's done, what type of uh, protections and 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 uh, and provisions are in place for for the leagues and the, and the and the competition owners in question. We've had lots of conversations in the last 18 months as we've again worked through our own strategic plan with a lot of those investors uh, in in the in a broad sense and there are lots of synergies with what we're trying to do as a growth plan. For the sport at an international level with some of those individual investment discussions. I think at this stage, the, the conclusion that we've come to with our own board and our own decision-making uh, bodies is that we don't see the need to, to try and fund what we're doing to grow the sport, that evolving business model, for example, around Rugby World Cups and, and our World Rugby Seven Series. We don't need a capital injection to do that. We believe we can do that more organically over a period of time. But that's not to say that there aren't opportunities in specific growth areas, whether that's specific growth markets or potentially individual competition assets for us to partner with with third party investors who can bring you know, a combination of capital and or skills that we might not have, you know, either geographically or more broadly to uh, to do that. So we're not we're certainly not closed off to those opportunities. A lot of those conversations continue. Um, ultimately, what we want to do is continue to find the best routes to grow the game in a sustainable way. And if we can do that um, with, you know, with third-party partners in, in different markets, then then we're always open to looking at that. It's interesting. Instead of having potentially a global deal with what would be, you could have specific deals. 
for example, right, if we, we've, we've been speaking about as a work cups for 15s, sevens, sevens. I mean, we all know that Rio and Tokyo have been massive success when it comes to uh, the sport exposure engagement with uh, rugby sevens. What is next for sevens? Yeah, again, we've taken, I guess, the opportunity a little bit and, and we would have done it probably anyway, but COVID again, um, it, it kind of required us to look at sevens with, with a sort of uh, a fresh lens. And, and, and partly that's because from a world rugby perspective, sevens was impacted more than any other part of our sport in terms of the competitions that we're the owner of. You know, the idea of flying uh, men's and women's sevens teams crisscrossing the globe on a, on a kind of Grand Prix circuit <clears throat> was obviously decimated during the COVID pandemic. So sevens was was badly affected. And, and that, again, caused us and allowed us to look at the future of sevens in a slightly different way. Sevens is, is without question uh, an opportunity for us in non-traditional rugby markets to, to grow attention for the sport more quickly. Uh, whether that attention is people, again, becoming ultimately participants in rugby or whether that's people uh, watching and enjoying rugby, it, sevens has been great. And, and certainly, being an Olympic sport platform that Rio 2016 gave us and then obviously Tokyo, albeit, you know, in very different circumstances with the delayed Olympic Games gave us. So, you know, they've been big parts as, you know, and now we look forward to Paris 24 and LA 28 and how we build around that. I think when we look at sevens, we we, we see an unbelievable rugby product on the field of play, an incredible sporting drama, sporting action, I mean, just incredible athletes across the men's and women's games at the highest level of sevens and a sport that's played all the way through, <clears throat> excuse me, to the recreational level. So we don't want to change what's happening on the field apart from continuing to evolve and, and make that product better. I think what, we, what we've looked at is how do we make sure when, when fans, you know, families, young people, people we want to attract to the sport, when they go and watch one of our seven series events, and that's normally two, sometimes slightly more days of packed wall-to-wall rugby sevens actions, how do we make sure they're getting the very best experience? And, and I think in truth, when we've really stripped that back, some of our sevens events do that. There are some iconic sevens events. I mean, Hong Kong and Dubai are always two to, to mention, but there are more than that when we've, you know, We've seen great events around the world. I mean, we've got a Rebel World Cup sevens uh, this month, September in uh, in Cape Town. That will be an incredible festival of of seven aside rugby. So there are great events around the world. How do we dial them all up to be fantastic entertainment events? How are we making sure when you go and watch rugby sevens, you're not only seeing great sporting action on the field, you're in a you're in an environment where you are entertained with your family, with your friends. Um, you know, whether that be a food festival, a music festival, all the things, all the entertainment we can layer around a weekend of sporting activity. So, so that's really where, where we're going to take sevens in the future, um, is build on the great sporting piece into a new, a new version of the World Rugby Seven series that attracts a much broader range of fans into the sport. So it's not much about the competition format. It's, is it eventually about locations and where you have people play? Yeah, I think look, I, iconic locations that, that make a real statement about the sport. And then what can we deliver to Thanks. really excite fans for, for, for a weekend? And we think it's a, you know, it's a young product. It's a product that people want to go to with their friends and family and really enjoy that experience and that weekend. They might not be sitting watching every single match of sevens across two days of competitions. That's fine. Let's bring everybody to the sport 
for the for the fun that it is in, in terms of that weekend. So yeah, iconic locations and great entertainment is uh, is I think the way we see sevens in the future, and you know that matches up with um, with how we want to promote the sport generally. Good. Uh, that goes sevens goes a lot with participation, obviously, as you said, because you go to emerging markets or or even you know markets with little or no rugby um, participation. Uh, within figures uh, almost tripled in the last 10 years so that's a lot uh, I, I don't know many sports who can presume that but as in sales it's always easier to keep clients and to get new ones so <laughs> i understand retention is key to the sport and you have some challenges in retention yeah and again i think lots of sports again coming out of, a, of the pandemic probably have looked at uh, at their retention rates and, and seen the points at which in our case rugby players maybe drop away from the sport you know coming out of of school uh, rugby teams coming out of university or college rugby coming out of you know a certain age demographic and in clubs so the, the the nature of people's commitment of time i think to sports and entertainment and how they consume uh, their activities clearly is changing so again how do we make sure we've got a sport that's more accessible more relevant to, to people so we you know we're working hard with our, our members our, our national federations to understand how we can support them better going forward in in retaining players and and of course build on that as we were before the pandemic in terms of increasing participation and again the women's game is an enormous opportunity in that so if we're seeing challenges in retaining certain players in traditional markets in men's 15 aside rugby whilst we want to address that how are we addressing also growth in the other parts of the sport i think one really interesting um, aspect of the sport for us that you'll see us focus on uh, in in the months and years ahead is is non-contact rugby you know rugby inherently and intrinsically is a contact based sport we have no you know no, no desire to change what really attracts a lot of people to our sport and, and we're very proud of that and the values of the game and the life skills and the mental and physical well-being that, that, that rugby generates however there's no doubt both in that retention question and in attracting more participants to the game that we need to better promote uh, as a sport the non-contact versions of rugby that already exist and they're and they're and they're multiple versions and they're they're very well played i mean in certain parts of the world you know tag rugby and other parts of the world touch rugby you know are, are big parts of our sport and we and we really think there's an opportunity for them to become much bigger parts of rugby uh, in the future and again address some of those retention and uh, and growth questions is flat football a big reference for you and that yeah there's, there's some similarities certainly in the way that the sports are played um, and again you know tag rugby is uh, you know is, is is played in great numbers in in certain parts of the world um and you know we know you know breed with interest that flag football has ambition to be you know to be a more global sport to potentially be an olympic sport for la28 which is which is really interesting and, and again we can all as sports i think see each other sometimes as competitors i think the other way of looking at that is we're collaborators you know we're all collaborators in trying to create healthier lifestyles for people and actually we should be working as we do behind the scenes more with uh, with other sports to to see what's working for them and what we can what we can learn from what other sports are doing and, and flag football is a good example of that in, in how we might approach the US as a as a growth market for rugby. Hmm, interesting. 
obviously it helps a lot for kids the non-contact and when you get older and you don't want to get injured you easily get injured it makes you stay in the sport eventually you know, yeah great, great plans women is key also you mentioned that it is the biggest growing numbers more growth in women than men what what specifically do you plan on the women's side There's lots of aspects to it. I think again, there are a lot of sports that are seeing you know, the women's version of their of their game as 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 a, as a high growth area. I think we've seen a huge increase in interest in women's rugby over the last 10 years. Um, we you know we launched a, a specific women's uh, growth plan four years ago, five years ago now, and you know are continuing to build on that. And and it's so kind of multifaceted. You know, how do we advocate more for women's rugby? Make women's rugby more present uh, through all of our existing structures. How do we make sure we've got proper gender diversity in our own decision making structures that allows us to to help take advantage of that opportunity? And ultimately, how do we commercialize women's rugby effectively to invest more back into into the growth of of not just the women's game but the game as a whole? So there's a huge piece of work that is ever ongoing in doing that, and we've got some great people working with us not just within world rugby but across the sport in that space one and it's the same three pillars ultimately it's a slight variation sometimes on those same three pillars competitions you know we've we've got a a women's rugby world cup in new zealand this year delayed from last year that will be you know an incredibly important game changing moment i think in the women's game people will see that the quality of women's international rugby is is off the charts in terms of uh, of entertainment Um, and, we, and we're really optimistic about what that means for the women's game going forward. You know, we're just coming off the back of the Women's European Football Championships, as we're talking, taking place, you know, in the UK, that's seen levels of audience engagement, partner and sponsor engagement, broadcaster engagement, and ultimately fan engagement beyond certainly what women's football in this part of the world has seen before. And that bodes well for Women's World Cup, for FIFA in Australia and New Zealand next year, for example. And, and we're on that same trajectory, you know, We've already placed our next three women's World Cups in England for 25. You know, a part of the world where women's rugby is is really booming. Um, the English public are in love with with their women's rugby team, and rightly so. Then we're into uh, Australia for 2029. Again, a part of the world where women's rugby is incredibly strong. And then again, as you mentioned earlier, on this kind of north star in our strategic. A competition plan of the Women's World Cup in the US in in 2033. So we've got this 10 year horizon that we're working towards to continue to build the women's game, and the competitions are a crucial part of that. One of the things that we announced uh, a couple of years ago that's been delayed by a year because our Women's World Cup is delayed is a new women's annual 15 aside uh, tournament called WXV. Um, that will see 18 teams compete in three divisions of six every year, apart from World Cup years. That's that's not only a great product for inspiring young boys and girls to play rugby, but it's also um, a really important high performance uh, platform for those for those international teams to have the right type of opposition on a more frequent basis to continue to to improve. And it's, as we build that competitive depth in the women's game, it's going to become an ever more aspirational and inspirational part of what we do. So the competition pillar is really important. That's a key driver, clearly, of the participation pillar for us, and making sure that uh, we are providing again great opportunities for for girls around the world to play rugby. Again, in all its form, it's not all about 15s. It might be sevens, and in some parts of the world, women's sevens is is the key driver for rugby as a whole. When we talk to Rugby India, for example, who have enormously ambitious plans for rugby in that part of the world, it is women's sevens that is their driver. 
Um, and that's great. And that's something we want to embrace and, and invest in with them, you know, right through again to non-contact versions of the sport that are going to be really important in, uh, in, in the growth of women and girls playing rugby. So participation, really important. And then when it comes to engagement, I mean, again, I think there's a, there's probably a picture we can all draw of a traditional rugby fan in a traditional rugby market that is, uh, that is a, as a male of a certain age. Um, who's followed rugby for a long time. And, and that's absolutely fantastic. We've got an incredibly loyal um, fan base that we're, that we're thrilled to keep adding to and growing to. But there's this incredibly dynamic audience of, of women and young women that we want to, the rugby to appeal to. So, so making sure that the way we present our sport uh, and, and the way we create and generate content around rugby is appealing to those, those different demographics, those different audiences, in different parts of the world is, is, an, is an incredibly important part of our engagement plan and, and, and again requires us to be um, more diverse as an organization so that we can be more diverse as a sport. Hmm. Before going to the before going to engagement more in details, markets, you know, lots all sports organizations have key strategic markets as brands. What are your key key markets where you put special efforts because you see there's potential for growth and they need support? That's definitely part of, uh, in the new strategic plan of us becoming more focused as an organization. And of course, you know, when you're a global organization as we are, we've got 129 members of countries spread across six regional associations. You know, you can't obviously focus on one particular place to the detriment of others. But what we want to really do is focus on a number of key markets as growth drivers, as part of a global plan. And hopefully those key markets and those key uh, growth areas, you know, become almost the kind of beacons that others follow in terms of the plan. So, you know, I mentioned just there in relation to the women's game, I mean, you, know, yeah. you look at, a, you look at a, a, a part of the world like India um, and, you know, the growth of the women's game in India and how do we work effectively with, with Rugby India, who are a great uh, member of ours, and therefore, more broadly, with Asia Rugby as a regional association to build out that plan. So that's so you know so that's that's one part of the world in in terms of Asia that we're, we've been really focused on. We took Rugby World Cup in 2019 to Japan. Uh, that was the first Rugby World Cup that had taken place in Asia. We had a project for the three years around that World Cup to to encourage a million new participants in rugby in Asia with with Asia Rugby, and we exceeded. In fact, we nearly doubled. Uh, the outcomes of uh, of those uh, of those targets. So so Asia and parts of Asia specifically, because Asia is an enormous continent in the world. Parts of Asia are, are definitely growth markets. But I think when we think about competitions, participation, and engagement as those three pillars, we really understand that the most addressable growth market that rugby has is 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 North America, is the U.S. and Canada. And the interesting thing about that is there is a huge amount of rugby being played in the US and Canada. And what we're now looking at is, again, with the slight North Star effect of putting Rugby World Cups there in the future, how do we build a really sustainable growth plan with partners in USA Rugby and Rugby Canada, and then more broadly into Central and South America, how do we build a growth plan for rugby in the Americas that is going to be sustainable in 10 years' time and well beyond? Um, and that's, that's no small feat. That's going to require a lot of resource a lot of, of, of careful planning and a huge amount of investment. And that, again, is where we're being thoughtful about um, third-party capital and investment partners helping us unlock the potential of rugby in, in certain growth markets. Yeah, and when you see the growth potential on incomes as well, if you do it well, it's a, it's a game changer. 
uh, for the future. So Absolutely. both both participation and incomes to allow to spread to other countries. Interesting. Engagement, engagement. When you speak about engagement, Brett Gosper is a king of brands. <laughs> uh, it's all about brand. It's all about fans, engaging fans with a brand. What is, where do you want to put the brand where rugby and rugby in general? What is it you want to achieve with the brand? How do you want the fans to perceive rugby? It's such a complex area, isn't it? And, and again, I think, you know, consumer habits have probably changed you know, more dramatically in the last few years, uh, you know, accelerated, I don't think because of, but accelerated by what we saw, the impacts of a global pandemic causing more than anything else. So we've seen this, this huge shift. And, and what that means, I think, for us as a brand is that we've got to be a bit more agile and a bit smarter than ever before and, and pay more attention to that. We, on the one hand, I think brand rugby has some incredible, again, heritage, this 200-year nearly 200-year heritage that we've got, and we are perceived and proud to be perceived as a very values-based sport, you know, values around discipline and respect and integrity, and they are really important, not just to the way the game's played on the field and that kind of special rugby community, that idea that you have this, you know, often very um, contact-based collision sport, and then you go off the field and, and that's forgotten and, and Uh, those opposing teams are incredibly, uh, you know, social and respectful and, uh, and, and enjoy each other's company. So that's a really important part of, of the sport and therefore of our brand as a sport. And we've described that, uh, in the past sometimes. And Brett, as you say, was, was, was brilliant at helping us articulate this. You know, rugby is a character building sport. And when we think about rugby and even in markets that aren't at all traditional rugby markets and we look at some of the incredible social impacts. Uh, work that we can do with rugby, we can see that it's character building and it's values based. I mean, we, we did some work on the 2019 World Cup and we are again with Women's World Cup uh, 2021 now playing from 2022 um, with a with a brilliant uh, charitable partner called Child Fund. You have a, have a part of Child Fund as a global organization that is Child Fund Rugby and focused on some projects in, um, in uh, disadvantaged communities in Southeast Asia where rugby is being used as a As a, as a teaching vehicle for life skills in, in, in communities. So, you know, for example, teaching life skills to, to young women in areas where gender equality isn't traditionally uh, that strong, um, so that they become stronger figures in their own communities. And that's, that's how we like to see rugby being positioned as a, as a, as a character building, values based, you know, socially impactful and inclusive sport. Beyond that, And that's one lens going back to what we described about, you know, reimagining and resetting what a sevens event feels like for a fan. We want this to be fun, high octane, engaging, entertaining content where we understand that everybody's going to want to play the game. So those people who are touching our sport by, by coming and being at one of our events need to be, you know, really well entertained, really engaged in, in what we're doing. So it's finding, I think, across that spectrum of of narrative, what works in different markets with different parts of the rugby ecosystem and, and reaches different types of fans in different ways. But at the at the very heart of it, we believe that rugby is a sport that's got a kind of social uh, currency that other sports just don't have. Yeah, no doubt. Very interesting part. Basic question, how many millions fans do you have? Oh, and what in numbers by categories of fans? 
Yeah, look, it's always difficult. And I, and I think, um, you know, we talk we talk broadly about 400 million fans for rugby okay. around the world. And the, and the reason we use that number, and we do annual research with Nielsen and other partners, and, and we can break that down into kind of avids and, you know, into, into followers, et cetera. But the reason we use the number of 400 million is really when we look again at the big moments in the sport. So Rugby World Cups, Rugby Sevens in Olympic Games, that's the type of audience that we can drive. Uh, through uh, through those big moments in the sport, and and some of those fans are going to be you know involved in and, and watching rugby a lot more than others, and and you know there's there's multiple challenges when it comes to engagement, isn't there? We we actually want more fans coming to the sport, but we want the fans who are in the sport watching more of it more of the time. So it's a little bit like participation, where there's a retention challenge and growing go growing the engagement that fans of rugby already have, turning more followers into avid fans. And, and that takes a particular type of content approach, I think. And then, of course, attracting more people uh, to the game uh, more of the time in more places. <laughs> Now, let's go to the game, the product, a famous product. And I like it to be so clear. Rugby, as you say, is a contact sport. Participation is key. You've mentioned non-contacts. So if you want to grow participation, you will have efforts on 15s, men and women, sevens, men and women, and non-contacts, that would be your three pillars? Yeah, that, I mean, look, obviously 15s and sevens are our established versions of the sport. As I mentioned earlier, non-contact rugby is played, you know, in, in, a, in a few different forms, but very well um, played in, in good numbers around the world. And we feel there's an opportunity to grow that area of the game more and to attract either new participants to the game through mm -hmm. non-contact or as, As you mentioned, Arno, maybe the, to retain some players who maybe are feeling the, the passing of time a little bit and don't feel they can play contact rugby anymore. Or indeed, you know, young, young boys and girls who played some contact rugby maybe decided that's not for them, but want to still be playing with a rugby ball. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so making sure, as some of our members in some countries do already, but that we don't necessarily do globally, making sure we promote that more. It's going to be an important part of the future, I think. More options, uh, more options yeah. for people depending on. Okay. And welfare is a challenge because you want parents, you want parents to be to feel comfortable having their kids play. Obviously, that's the first thing yeah. you care about is the health of your kids. Yeah. I understand you've done a lot of efforts and beyond perceptions is that it's improving. So there's a lot of concrete actions that have improved so some risk management. Can you yeah. let us know more? Yeah, definitely. Look, it's it's the top priority for us as a as an international federation in relation to the sport of rugby. So, with the nature of the sport we have, making sure we are creating and ever evolving the sport to be as safe as possible for the people playing it at every level is really important. And 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 we do an enormous amount of work in that area. We've doubled in the last few years the amount of money, for example, we spend on on player safety and welfare research. We've recognised. Going back to talking about the growth of the women's game, we've recognised that player safety and welfare in the women's game isn't just a direct derivative of what we've learned in the men's game. So you have to be very specific about dedicating investment into the research and, and science behind the women's game. You know, and, and one part of that, and it is only one part of that, is that is the concussion area. Concussion is a is a significant issue in our sport. Head impacts that lead to concussive injuries is is something that we you know spend a lot of time. Uh, an investment uh, looking at and women suffer uh, concussions in different ways to, to men's rugby players their symptoms present themselves in slightly different ways and they recover differently to men and actually 
we need to know more about that to make the women's game safer. So again, that's, that's not about extrapolating or or, um, or or adapting research we're doing in the men's game. That's about doing very specific research in the women's game. I'll give you one example of that. We've just, uh, we're just about to move in, as we said, to a, a Women's World Cup in New Zealand that was delayed from 2021. Mm-hmm. And all of the teams in that tournament will, will be using what we call instrumented mouth guards. So microchipped mouth guards that measure the impact of uh, of, 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 of measure those impacts so that we can understand more about what that means in women's elite level rugby. Um, and we've undertaken a huge amount of work in the last few years to understand not only what those impacts mean, but actually, which is back to your point about parenting. And, you know, I've got teenage kids who play lots of sports, so I can, I can relate first time to my, my own sample groups is, you know, as a parent, you, you want to understand that, that the sports your kids are playing are as safe as they can be. And one part of that, when you look at a sport like rugby for a parent is, is my son or daughter actually experiencing the same type of impact that, that we see on the television when we're watching elite international rugby? And of course, the answer is no. Now, the type of the type of impacts that are being experienced in junior and community rugby are different to the, you know, to the highly trained, highly conditioned athletes that are playing the international game but we need to know more about that we can't just assume that's the case so we do a lot of work again uh, there's a lot of investment in the research and the science behind that and, and and i think our commitment to the sport and to our players and participants is we never stand still as an organization when it comes to, to the safety and welfare of our players there's always more to do there's always a lot more work to do but we will always continue to evolve and we're going to continue to evolve with the science and with the facts. And sometimes that means we're going to get criticised because all sorts of different uh, opinions come into that space and uh, demand that we're more conservative or that we follow what other sports are doing differently. And our answer to that is we'll invest in the science and and the facts and then we'll continue to follow uh, that evidence-based approach. And we've just recently, you know, in the last six months, evolved a number of areas around how we diagnose concussions, what we call head head injury assessment, that's an ever-changing process as the science evolves and how players recover from concussion, which we call individualised rehabilitation or graduated return to play uh, at the elite level of the game and individualised uh, rehabilitation in the community game. And, and, and those processes and those protocols evolve because the science has evolved. Hmm. That's, that's interesting because you, you, people could perceive rugby as a very conservative sport, gentleman sport. And at the end, it's one of the most progressive sport, uh, on my opinion, creating the sevens, adapting the rules of the game. I mean, I would love to see the yellow cards 10 minutes out in football and players will just not, you know, behave the yeah. same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, what- that, you're absolutely right. That's a, that's a key part of, of this. Again, you know, and, and think about that from, you know, six-year-olds playing mini rugby through the community game at different ages, all the way to the elite international game in men's and women's rugby. You know, we need to use the, the the laws, the sanctions, the different the different tools we have to ultimately change player behaviour and coach behaviour and behaviour around the sport to continue to make the game safer, but without you know losing the intrinsic kind of value back to that values-based piece of the game that we have. And that's a fine balancing act all the time. And, you know, I'm pleased that you say that because, you know, I think we really believe that we are an incredibly progressive sport in that space. But again, we can't stand still. There's always more to do. 
yeah, always more to do, but a lot being done. And a lot of other sports could take a look at what you do um, when it comes to fields such as wounds or the game and different different aspects. So congrats on that. Just to, to finish that conversation, we could last a lot more because I would love to deep dive on each of the topics. But no, a series of questions for you. Uh, okay. it's, a, it's a kind of a ritual we have. It's quite simple. And I'm curious to see your answers. What is your favorite athlete ever? Oh, wow. Um, favorite athlete ever. I'm, a, I'm a, outside of rugby. I'm a massive basketball fan. And I think I would say the greatest athlete ever in terms of an individual athlete's influence on their sport, I, I would argue probably in my lifetime, at least as Michael Jordan. So I'm a, I'm a massive Michael Jordan fan um, and what he's what he's done for the sport of basketball. When I was a kid, and I think about this a lot when I think about another Olympic Games in Los Angeles in 2028, when I was a kid, I was totally seduced and Uh, and fell in love with the Los Angeles Olympic Games in 1984. And my favorite athlete as a as a as a Brit was uh, was Daley Thompson. So I think those two might at different ends of the spectrum. Daley Thompson, who was a dick athlete, oh, uh, and won the gold medal, and was quite a controversial character. Daley, um, so uh, he was a fantastic kind of inspiration for me as a kid. But probably globally, Michael Jordan. Most people would remember Carl Lewis. Um, interesting one. Interesting one. Favorite sport event? Favorite sport event, and I know I would say this, but Rugby World Cup. Um, and, and, I, and I say it for a couple of reasons. You know, professionally, it's defined my my journey, my career from from loving uh, my first involvement professionally in Rugby World Cup in, in 2003. I'd watched Rugby World Cups before that, all the way through to um, to where we are now. Obviously. You know, fast approaching a women's world cup in New Zealand and then a men's world cup next year in, in France. So, and it's, and it's been an amazing event because I think rugby world cup has really shown the trajectory of the growth of our sport in a way that probably is unusual for a single event to, to really track uh, the growth in a sport. And, you know, I, I know for the millions of people who've been lucky enough to be at rugby world cups and, uh, and experience it is, you know, it truly is a wonderful event. And, and, and our last rugby world cup in Japan was, you know, was, was an incredible time. Yeah, beautiful one, indeed. Uh, your favorite stadium where you feel the biggest emotions? My favorite stadium. I'm my 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 hometown for rugby is is a, is a club called Gloucester in the southwest okay. of England, and Gloucester have a very famous stadium called King's Home. Uh, and even within King's Home, there's a very famous stand called the Shed. Uh, and the Shed's unusual because it's not there's no seats. Everyone stands uh, to watch rugby in the Shed. So I think I'd say. I'd say King's Home Stadium in Gloucester and the Shed. Nice. That right? Philippe Saint-André was playing. Philippe Saint-André was coach at Gloucester. Player yeah. and coach. Player and coach, right? Did well with Montpellier this year. Favorite sound in a stadium. In this stadium, if you take that stadium, what's your favorite sound? Oh, wow. Um, and again, this will, this will only probably uh, resonate with a very small number of people listening to this podcast because Gloucester Rugby is not uh, a, a, a globally supported brand in the same way that we might be talking about some others. Um, it will be one day, but it's not quite there. Um, so Gloucester don't really have a chant or a song. The fans just literally shout Gloucester in a very Gloucester accent, which if you're not from Gloucestershire, uh, almost sounds unrecognisable. So that sound is, uh, is always fantastic. Um, I love the... I love the, the there's, there's two contrasting parts of being in a rugby stadium that I love. I, I love uh, always wherever you are in the world the anthems. Uh, I think rugby does anthems, you know, national anthems, really, really well. To be in Argentina in a stadium when the Argentinian national anthem is being sung 
and an international rugby match is one of those moments where all the kind of hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And the same I have to say is true. And I'm not just saying this because of our current uh, partners and audiences, but the same is true. I think when you when you're in the Stade de France for a big match and the French uh, French fans are singing the Marseillaise, it's uh, it's a pretty special experience that before uh, an international. So they're great sounds to, to be involved in. A cappella. What turns you off? Very different question. What turns you off? What pisses you off? Um, what pisses me off? I, one of the things that's, that's challenging, again, I bring it right back kind of selfishly to, to what we do in rugby. I think one of the things that's challenging is rugby is a sport that a lot of... Uh, a lot challenge. Of, challenge. Quick answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, negativity. Negativity. Yeah, oh. people being negative about the sport and even people within the sport finding all the reasons to criticise. Uh, I think we do that in rugby far too much. What turns you on? Uh, I just think great sport. I mean, I, you know, I'm in this business because I, again, back to you know, Football World Cup in 1982 and Los Angeles Olympics in 1984, fell in love with the idea of big sports events. And when you're when you're in those big moments, and, in, and and we're privileged to be in that business, but even as a fan, when you're in those big moments, I don't think there's anything like it. that shared experience of live, unpredictable, brilliant sport. <laughs> One piece of advice you have received that influenced your life you would love to share? Haha, tough one. I had a brilliant Welsh uh, sports teacher at, at secondary school, and he used to say, which is a very rugby thing and a very Welsh thing, um, kind of pass where you're looking and look where you're passing. And that sounds like a weird thing to say, but but it was all about, you know, really planning out and, and playing out what you want to do with the ball. Um, and I think that's not just great advice when you're trying to pass a rugby ball. It's great advice when you're thinking about your career or your family or, you know, that, you know, my kind of mantra to my kids is, is whatever you do, be calm, be confident and be curious. And I sort of take that from a few different bits of advice that I was, that I've been given along the way. Love it. Say it again to work as a phrase. So be calm. Oh Be no! So, so Welsh teachers, a phrase. Oh, the Welsh teacher was was pass where you're looking, and look where you're passing. You know, don't be careless; just throw the ball away. You know, be deliberate about it. And uh, yeah, I've taken that into a few things. Nice, Neil. If he's listening, and I'm I'm sure he's not, but Neil McCleary, and I hadn't heard from him for more than 30 years. And as we were having a tough time with a typhoon in Japan, he wrote a wonderful email to me. Very touching. Yeah, what beautiful to remember your coach at that time. What does it mean to you to be happy? Oh, it's everything, isn't it? I, I'm I'm very lucky to uh, to do a job that I derive a huge amount of enjoyment from. I work and I have worked across you know all of my career back to IMG and, and all through London Olympic Games and World Rugby. I've worked with some truly exceptional people, and I think again we're lucky in sport. There are sport attracts great people uh, into the industry uh, with huge enthusiasm, huge hearts. Uh, people who are really, you know, passionate about what they do. So that makes me very happy. And I combine that with a with a wonderful family, and uh, and I'm, I, I find myself constantly feeling how fortunate I am. <laughs> One last question: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, I'd like to hear God say, "If heaven exists, the game of rugby is just about to start over there." <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Alan, uh, for your time and sharing with our Seas Masters audience. Wish you the best 
I know you're going to be a great leader for what we be. You are a great leader and you, you're going to drive a lot of positive change with a lot of purpose. And so the best for you, the best for your team, uh, the best for this endeavor and have a good one, my friend. Thank you very much, John. It's been a great pleasure to, uh, to talk to you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast. We'd love you to subscribe. Please leave a review or rate the podcast. It will help us improve. We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy. Enjoy.